Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. You know, we're both writers. A lot of writing goes into what we do here at, uh, at How Stuff Works and Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Um, and uh, as writers, we're always engaging in those uh, those in- environmental situations where how am I how am I going to focus on what I'm working on here on the page and in my mind and in that sort of unreal space between the two, while also having to deal with vehicles roaring by, mm-hmm. with uh, people walking by, people falling down, animals, weather patterns, you name it. Yeah, it's a lot of wooing of the mind. And uh, Chekhov had said, if you look at anything long enough, say just that wall in front of you, it will come out of that wall. And that's the idea, right, um, that we're going to cover today, this idea of optimal inattention and willful ignorance, this idea that you can put a spell on your mind long enough to concentrate on teasing out the things that will come out of the wall. Yes. Yeah. Especially that uh, that woman in the yellow wallpaper. I was got to keep her push back in. Indeed. Um, American poet Robert Creeley, uh, 1926 to 2005, uh, he said, quote, the necessary environment is that which secures the artist in the way that lets him be in the world in a most fruitful manner, which uh, I think is an interesting way of, of thinking about it, because uh, w- when we sit down to, to work on something, often we think about um, how much we are shutting out. But there's also the attention side of it. And and as someone who often works in a coffee shop, um, I, I, it's like I'm, I'm purposely going to kind of a busy, semi-chaotic environment to engage with uh, tasks that uh, require uh, a lot of concentration. It's because it's kind of like the Goldilocks and the three bears of sound or optimal <laughs> sounds, right? Because, you know, on the one hand, you could have something that was so silent, like Orfield Labs has that quietest room in the world. Mm-hmm. It shuts out 99% of sound. Too quiet. You'll yeah. start hallucinating, actually. <laughs> yeah. You know, on the other end of the spectrum, a bar with thumping music mm-hmm. is way too distracting. That's like a jackhammer on your brain. Right. But yeah, coffee houses have just the, the right amount of ambient noises to allow your brain some effort to uh, kind of crowd that out, but have enough left over to actually deal with the task at hand. Indeed. Now, we were looking at a, an article uh, titled The Importance of Place, Where Writers Write and Why by Alexandria Enders in uh, The Literary Life. And uh, she mentioned a number of different uh, um, famous authors and, and where they've written and what their approach has been. And, of course, it's 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 all over the board. Like some of the ones that, that I found interesting, uh, Robert Graves wrote uh, In a Room Furnished Only with Objects Made by Hand. Uh, ben Franklin uh, wrote In the Bathtub. Uh, Balzac ate an enormous meal at uh, around 5 in the morning. Then he slept till midnight, got up, and wrote at a small desk in his room for 16 hours straight, just drinking cup after cup of coffee to fuel the frenzied brain. We also have the example of Marcel Proust, best known for his novel Remembrance of Things Past. Uh, He decided to shrug off society and all of the clamor that came with it. In 1910, he installed himself in his apartment and he actually took cork and he lined his room, his bedroom with mm-hmm. it. Oh wow. And to keep out the ambient noises of Parisian streets below him. And not only that, he, he kinda gets a little bit O C D with his process here. And I feel like a lot of writers mm-hmm. do. 
this, by the way. He installed heavy blue silk curtains to keep the light out, and he slept until late afternoon each day, at which point he would get up, smoke some opium, and then his housekeeper would bring him an elaborate coffee service for him to make his own cafe au lait. He'd have a croissant. He would go through his mail, read his newspaper, have a second croissant, which, by the way, this was all orchestrated at certain times. His housekeeper knew to bring in the (laughs) croissant, and it had to be from the same bakery every day. And then and only then would he begin his process of writing in this sort of muffled, womb-like environment he had created for himself to actually finish the novel, Remembrance of Things Past. Wow. Well, that's quite a... Quite a cocktail, quite quite a recipe uh, he created for himself there, both uh, both chemically and environmentally. But I think all of us can relate to that on some level because we've all had something we had to work on, whether or not it was a piece of fiction mm-hmm. or something for work or whatever that just required us to gr- get that sort of balance in our environment. And uh, here's a bit from Alan Lightman writing for The New Yorker about attention. He says, quote, the eyes alone convey more than a 100 billion signals to the brain every second. The ears receive another avalanche of sounds. Then there are the fragments of thoughts, conscious and unconscious, that race from one neuron to the next. Much of this data seems random and meaningless. Indeed, for us to function, must have, m- much of it has to be ignored. But clearly not all. How do our brains select the relevant data. Indeed, I mean, to his to his point, we live in a just a chaotic storm of sensory information, but we've evolved to navigate it with relative ease, weeding out the useless information and focusing in on the crucial stuff. I mean, to say nothing of uh, of, of the storm within, also dealing with uh, with thoughts of past and future, we're able to ignore internal and external distractors, but we can also inhibit competing responses to situations uh, in order to accomplish tasks. So, yeah, the key here is that we're not processing everything. As we've discussed in past episodes, there's a great deal of sensory computation that occurs beneath cognition. We, we don't even, we're not even consciously aware that we're seeing this or hearing that because we're rooting it out. I think we've talked before about uh, that scenario of being at a party and being able to focus in on the conversation you're having or tuning out of that conversation and listening to the one next to you while also ignoring all the other sounds. Um, but a lot of the sensory data that enters our sen- sensory system remains untouched. I mean, it basically goes one in, it basically goes in one ear and out the other, uh, as the saying goes. Typically, a neuron in the brain receives hundreds or even thousands of different inputs along its dendrites, and yet it sends just one message uh, out to the next neural area. So scientists continue to study attention and distraction. And in this podcast episode, we're looking at, at a couple of uh, more recent studies that look at both attention and willful inattention uh, and, and how we roll with it. Yeah, and when we look at these studies, keep in mind this kind of metaphor um, when you think about all that stimuli and the attention that you need. Um, think about a chorus, all right? You have one specific part of the brain, the interior frontal cortex, that's like the conductor. Mm-hmm. And he or she is muting one section of voices while cueing another section to raise its voice over the others until there's something that feels like cognition, right? Mm-hmm. This one cohesive symphony of neurons, even though there's still the murmuring uh, or murmurings of these random neurons underneath it. So that's that's this kind of symphony of cognition that we're going to explore today. 
Now we'll often find ourselves in get in that situation where you're torn between paying attention to two different things. It might be your math homework versus a TV. It might be the book you're reading versus uh, on the beach versus the person playing volleyball on the beach or the ocean on the beach. Um, you want to focus in on one thing, but the focus on one thing is to ignore the other. How does it work? Well, when you're faced with these two different bits of stimuli, it triggers a conflict circuit in the brain's dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, or DAC, part of uh, a larger brain structure, the anterior cingulate cortex, that controls rational thought and emotions. Uh, that's the inner workings of what's going on. But we can also tell a lot from the outside, uh, particularly looking at the eyes. In recent years, researchers have gained uh, even more appreciation for the importance of eye movements, pupil size, when it comes to trying to figure out what the brain is focusing on, how much it's focusing on, how much computation power is being uh, leveled at a particular task. And in order to examine this conflict, right? Mm-hmm. When you're trying to attend to attend to one thing but you're distracted by another thing, Duke University actually had a study in which Michael Platt and his team of researchers implanted sensors into the DACs of rhesus macaques. And again, the DAC is the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex. Now the best way to create conflict in the DAC of monkeys is to introduce two things that they really love and then just kind of square them off. So in this case, we're talking about juice, one thing they love, Mm -hmm. and other monkeys. I feel like I'm the same way. Like juice and monkeys, like really, it's a toss-up for me. It's not juice and humans, it's juice and monkeys. Exactly. Like show me a monkey, show me a juice box. I don't know which one I want to pay attention to. All right, well, if we were to uh, implant a sensor into your brain and do this, it would be very interesting to see what the results would be because the researchers took the two things that they love. They offered a juice reward if the monkey could keep their eyes trained on a visual target on a screen. But then they took the other thing that they loved, other monkeys, and they flashed images of them on the periphery of the screen. So what was even more distracting is that some of the monkey faces that they flashed on the screen exhibited specific emotions like terror which would be really hard for another yeah. monkey to ignore. In fact, another human to ignore, right? Yeah, basic social s- signal. Something terrifying is happening. I should pay attention to what that monkey's doing. Right. And again, they had a juice reward here. If they could keep their eyes on the prize, they would get the juice, but a lot of times they failed. Now, the results here, the researchers discovered a set of neurons that were active only when monkeys were completing the task and trying to override those distracting monkey faces, but not when faced with either of the stimuli alone just the juice box or just the monkey faces. And the more active the DAC neurons were, the better the monkeys were at tuning out the distracting faces in later trials. And the pupils seemed to change in size to compensate for how difficult the task was, constricting when the faces were hard to ignore, such as uh, those terrorized faces we were talking about. And the smaller they got, the pupils, the better the monkeys performed in subsequent trials. So the key here is fight or flight. The fight or flight response causes a release of the stress hormone noradrenaline, widening the pupils so as to take in more sensory information for the challenge at hand. I feel like we've talked about that in, in memory before. You know, those like really stressful situations, you, it may at least seem like you're taking in more sensory information. Well, especially in fear as well. Right. Yeah. So key findings, the DAC doesn't directly control pupil size, but it connects to other regions of the brain that do. The researchers think that DAC might play a role in keeping us calm in the face uh, in face of the demands for our attention that might otherwise make us confused or stressed out. 
Now, in a follow-up study in 2013, Platt found that macaques performing the same eye gaze task did a better job of concentrating if they had inhaled oxytocin. Hmm. And the idea is that the hormone may have contributed to better task attention because of its calming effects and its role as a social bonding agent, which makes you wonder if one day classrooms will have oxytocin piped in there. But more likely, this is just going to give us, uh, these studies are just going to give us better insight into how something like, say, driving while texting or even talking on the phone while we're driving means that we're seriously impairing the neuronal symphony that's been set forth by the brain, right, to try to get us where we're going. Um, these studies could also give us insight into attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD as well. And I do love that term, optimal inattention, because it, it really... It really makes you think uh, twice about any kind of task you're doing, about what you're focusing on, but also what you're shutting out, that the, the, the optimal inattention uh, level that you're reaching in order to get things done. It's just something that I want to put on my next assessment. <laughs> you know, I was demonstrating optimal inattention. <laughs> well, there's a 2015 study from uh, Brown University that uh, that really uh, digs into this a bit. Um, Neuroscientists uh, there scanned the brain waves of 12 volunteers uh, while they were told that they would feel a brief tap either on the, the left middle finger or on their left big toe. Now, some were told to ignore stimuli on the foot, and some were told to ignore stimuli on the hand. The researchers measured the power and timing of different brainwave frequencies in various brain regions while this was going on. Uh, and of particular interest to them, brainwave synchronization between the part of the somatosensory cortex that processes touch in the hand and the right inferior frontal cortex tied to suppression of attention and, att- and action. Now, I wanted to mention that the researchers used magnetoencephalography to scan subjects. And this is significant because unlike fMRI, which has a pretty decent delay when scanning the brain, MEG is more precise because it can really reveal the timing of neural activity down to the millisecond. So you can see that neuronal symphony at play here. And the researchers anticipated that they would see a greater synchrony between the somatosensory cortex... Uh, that part of the brain, again, that processes touch and the right inferior frontal cortex, which is, again, uh, governing suppression. And they wanted to control, though, right? Because I wanted to make sure that this right inferior frontal cortex was, in fact, governing. So they looked out uh, at the frontal cortex to make sure there wasn't a lot of activity going on there. And they found, indeed, that there was not, that it was the RIFC that was tamping down the urges to become distracted. And they did, indeed, find that correlation of synchrony between the somatosensory cortex and the RIFC. Uh, moreover, when volunteers were simply told what was about to happen, uh, just a fraction, fraction of a second later, they saw the alpha wave synchrony increase between those two brain regions, already gearing up to partner in this sort of shared process of stimuli and reporting. And researchers found a similar spike in synchrony when volunteers were about to report a sensation. This time, though, it was beta wave synchrony between the somatosensory cortex and the RIFC, which is painting this 
picture of these two brain processes really trying to tether themselves together and create that willful ignoring. Now, at this point, you might be wondering, well, what are what are some of the, the possible um, applications of this? Uh, because, you know, we've, we've been talking about, you know, taps on the, the hand and the foot, uh, ignoring slight sensory information like that. Uh, but one application here gets into possible uh, use as a uh, as a means of, of, of treating chronic pain. Uh, study co-authors uh, Stephanie Jones and Catherine Kerr are actually working with Dr. Breen Gr- Brent, Dr. Ben Greenberg, a professor of psychiatry and human behavior, to explore the possible use of non-invasive transcranial altering current electrical stimulation, or TACS, to take advantage of this willful inattention process. Now, tax has previously been explored uh, for possible applications tackling diseases where abnormal oscillatory patterns uh, in the brain play a role, such as Parkinson's disease or schizophrenia, uh, as well as in therapy for optic nerve injuries. Uh, in this case, however, uh, Kieran Jones are curious as to whether you know, tax could be used to manipulate alpha and beta waves between parts of the brain, such as the somatosensory cortex and the right inferior frontal, the right inferior frontal cortex, to suppress attention to or even the detection of pain. So. The, again, the the, uh, the possibilities here in the treatment of chronic pain, especially, uh, are pretty significant. Well, and also, pain is probably the most distracting thing that you could throw out there, right? Oh, yeah. in, in some sort of environment, your internal state, um, to try to tamp down. So, what's interesting is that researchers also looked at pain through meditation. So, if you want to test out how well meditation works in blocking pain, well. Here's the study by Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center, which was published in the April 6, 2011 edition of the Journal of Neuroscience. And what they did is they recruited 15 healthy volunteers who had never, ever meditated before. They attended four 20-minute classes to learn a meditation technique known as focused attention. This is a kind of mindfulness in which people are taught to attend to the breath and then let go of distracting thoughts and emotions. And in fact, the the meditation app that I use does this um, to great effect. It really teaches you how to not force these thoughts away, but mm-hmm. let them just recede into the background. So they learned how to do this. And both before and after meditation training, their brain was examined. They used something called ASL MRI, which actually captures longer duration brain processes than just regular fMRI. And during these scans, this is the great part, a pain-inducing heat device was placed on the participants' right (laughs) legs, and this device heated an area of their skin to 120 degrees Fahrenheit, a temperature that most people would find, you know, uncomfortable and even painful. But it wasn't just like a cigar pressed to them, because that's what I initially was thinking. No, no, this was not like run by the mafia or anything, this experiment. Um, And they endured this for over a five-minute period. Now, here are the cool findings. Uh, The scans taken after meditation training showed that every participant's pain rating was reduced, with decreases ranging from 11 to 93%. And moreover, activity in the somatosensory cortex, which was processing the intensity of the heat, was really high when scans were taken uh, before the participants underwent meditation training and while they were experiencing the heat. But when participants were meditating during the scans and having the heat applied to them, activity 
in this region, this pain processing region, could not be detected at all. So Fidel Zidane, who is a lead author of the study, wrote, we found a big effect, about a 40% reduction in pain intensity and a 57% reduction in pain unpleasantness. Now compare that to something like morphine or other pain-relieving drugs, and they typically only reduce pain ratings by about 25%. Wow. And this is even more telling when you, again, realize that these are just normal people that were essentially given a crash course in meditation, not yeah. yogis, not Tibetan monks, just normal folks. Right. Not Zen level, you know, I'm going to um, endure this pain and suffering for my entire life, right? People who are just like, okay, I'll participate in this study. <laughs> All right, it's 1925. Yes. Okay, we're going to get in our time machine. It's 1925, and you are in serious need of some sort of isolation so that you can really concentrate. And uh, by the way, you're this guy who uh, happens to be named Hugo Gernsback. You're an editor of Science and Invention magazine, and you're a pioneer in sci-fi. What do you do when you need a little respite from the world and you need to concentrate? Well, you uh, cook up a little sci-fi, essentially a space helmet to escape from the environment that you're working in, which I imagine is filled with cigarette smoke as well. Uh, oh, right. Yeah, because this is this is 1925 again, so it's probably one of those. Uh, when I was in newspapers, uh, I, I would I would hear about old environments where someone would would have to say "cigarette me" while they were working on a, a, a story. You know, where someone comes up and actually just puts the cigarette in your mouth and lights it for you. So I think it's a very much a cigarette me world that Hugo was uh, suffering through. That's right, and uh, he did come up with a solution, which he called the isolator. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, basically just a big sort of Darth Vadery looking uh, contraption, a big helmet that he would put over his head, a uh, soundproof head cage, essentially, mm-hmm. with its own oxygen oxygen supply, again, so you don't have to, you're not distracted by all that cigarette smoke or what have you that you're breathing in in your, in your office. Yeah, um, it has just those two round eye holes and a sort of protruding mouth hole area where yeah. the, the hose for the oxygen comes in, and it really is just an example of artful terror. Yeah, it, it kind of has a man in the iron mask look to it yeah. or some sort of like face shackle that you would put on a, a suspected warlock in a medieval setting. But hey, I mean, you got to do what you got to do and you need to get down to business. And uh, Hugo Gernsback was just taking the reins there. <laughs> and if you want to see a picture of it, uh, the landing page for this episode, I'll make sure to include a link at the bottom. All right, you know, uh, we've got a few minutes here. Let's call over the robot and get through a little listener mail. This is from Brian. He says, hello, Julie and Robert. I'm 17 years old and have been listening to your podcast since you guys were stuffed from the science lab, which is a pretty long time, but I never bothered to write you as I'm sure you have enough emails and junk to go through. I love the podcast and it inspired me to learn oodles. Is this a word of creativity? But one problem I have, and I hate to be a party pooper, is how you guys seem to be almost purposely avoiding the concept of race. While race should be unimportant in society, it no doubt has an effect on how we treat each other in modern day society. Plenty of topics you've done could have mentioned race, but I feel like you guys are just avoiding it. 
There's plenty of science, interesting science, about race and discrimination that can be talked about in a completely objective way, the same way you talk about homosexuality or religion. There's no need to feel like you can't talk about the subject. People are just different colors, and there's nothing to feel awkward about. But I still love the podcast and really enjoy Robert's really obscure metaphors. My two <laughs> favorite are sharks being like movie producers and mortality being like the bubble scene from Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. Oh, yes. I mean, that was a good one. I'm not sure how to end an email. I haven't sent an email in years. I'm going to assume to end it like a letter. Brian, your oldest fan who still happens to be very young. Hmm. Uh, so Brian, besides being one of our youngest and most precocious fans, by the way, he's planning on studying neuroscience in college. He is an excellent observer. We have not covered race in earnest, though it's not intentional by any means. Uh, we've lit on it a few times with studies that have come up from time to time, but, you know, that's not enough. So uh, we will be recording a podcast called The Gordian Knot of Race that will deal with this erroneous line of logic like see no color, this idea that sometimes can gloss over the more deep-seated issues uh, that exist today. And we'll discuss how the unconscious and the conscious uh, play out in terms of racial biases that shape socioeconomics. And we'll also see how that can lead to something called the school to prison pipeline. Hmm. Yeah, and if I remember correctly, we did go, uh, we discussed uh, in the Seven Sins of Memory um, episode uh, how false memories work. We discussed a little about uh, racial bias in terms of how we remember things. But uh, but yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, diving into it in earnest. Yeah, so thank you, Brian, for writing. That, that was uh, really helpful and great to hear from you. All right, this one comes to us from Rico. Rico says, hi, guys. Been listening to the podcast for a while now, and no matter the topic, I have been thoroughly enthralled. Until the recent episode about babies, it wasn't the thought of both of you eating a small child. That might have been better. It was the constant and repetitive reference to babies and their features that gave me a physical feeling of nausea and disgust. I don't know why. It affected me in a way that the uh, trypophobia episode never did. This is not a complaint, just an amusing anecdote. Further, I have a UV tattoo. A few points. Number one, finding an artist who is willing to tattoo you in UV ink has been difficult, even here in Los Angeles. Number two, tattooing the UV ink is difficult. It has a runny texture that my artist suggested was, quote, akin to tattooing someone with lemonade. Number three, the UV property of the ink fades. Uh, I have the clear UV ink, and after a short time, it will no longer glow. And number four, because of the above, I have gotten the tattoo redone a few times, and now the appearance is closer to scarification. Appreciations, Rico. So that, uh, in, indeed, it's always uh, interesting to hear about people's um, responses to uh, outright disturbing content or um, unexpectedly disturbing content, and uh, really great to hear some uh some uh, actual first-hand experience on UV tattoos. Yeah, and we cer- certainly didn't mean to, uh, to to scare you away there with our descriptions of juicy babies. Um, but, you know, each of us has a tender spot, and you never know how or when it's going to be revealed. All right, our last bit of listener mail here comes from Jason. It says, hi, I'm Jason. I just listened to your podcast about the weight of the soul. I've always found subjects like this interesting because I happen to work in the healthcare field, specifically respiratory therapy. I have currently worked in a major, 
I currently work in a major hospital and am constantly exposed to the dead, the dying, the very ill. My job is literally to improve the breathing of or breath for my patients. Early on in my career, I noticed that I could tell whether a person was alive or dead by looking at their eyes. I'm not exactly sure where this phrase came from, but the eyes are the window into the soul. I believe it is how it goes, and it feels like a very literal translation. On one hand, when we look into each other's eyes, we see a life force that I still have no words to describe. On the other hand, I never see any activity, just emptiness. Their eyes always change right before the code occurs. Example, a patient of mine was having issues breathing. He was on a ventilator with a tracheostomy and had been getting continually anxious over the last hour or so. I had been in and out of his room that night doing various things to attempt to help him calm down. Although his vital signs were fairly stable and his oxygenation status looked perfect, I was still concerned. While waiting in his room, I started to notice an acute change in his appearance and told one of the nurses to get a doctor. As soon as the words came out of my mouth, I looked into his eyes, saw them glaze over, lose their light, energy, life force, focus, and he was gone. When I say, go dark, I always feel that there is a light in those eyes that goes away such as a candle being blown out. This was one of those cases where at the moment of death you could see his eyes go dark while still talking to him. It's at this point that I should mention that I've seen this light, energy, focus, whatever you want to call it, come back into someone's eyes. This is usually, this usually occurs in patients with injuries or illnesses that are serious enough to kill someone but can also be fixed if they, if they if they do die. It's incredibly hard to explain, but watching someone's eyes, you can see them go from empty and glazed over to lit up and active. I can't explain this phenomenon, but I know this is something that not everyone talks about or even notices, not that I know of. I thought you might find this interesting, so I figured I would share. If you have any questions, please feel free to contact me. Well, indeed, thank you for uh, for sharing that uh, that firsthand account, indeed, of uh, of something that most of us never get to witness. I mean, we're so far removed from uh, from death in our culture that uh, that certainly the moment of death is uh, often lost to us. Indeed, it uh, harkens back to when we were talking about end-of-life robots at one point. There mm-hmm. was an artist who was creating a bit of AI to um, help people at the end of their lives, and we were debating about the really the necessity and the helpfulness of that um, mm-hmm. when it pales in comparison to having that human connection and that other person with you. Indeed. So, Jason, thanks again for sharing. Thanks to the others as well. And, uh, hey, in the meantime, if you want to check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com, that's where you'll find all of our podcast episodes. That's where you'll find all of our videos, our blog posts, as well as links out to social media accounts. And you can send us your thoughts on this and any other podcast by emailing us at BlowTheMindHowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 